0: Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch.
1: And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board. Also very proud of Patrick as we are stumbling into the final podcast of the year. Crushed that opening.
0: Thank you.
1: Crushed it. Also reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. I didn't
0: realize how much I needed validation right after the opening, but from now on, Amy, if you could just interject a compliment after the first thing I say per episode. I'll
1: make a note.
0: On today's episode, the final of 2022, National Hemophilia Foundation Chief Executive Officer and President Dr. Len Valentino is here for an interview where we look at the year behind and The year ahead.
1: And always a great conversation. Never not a good conversation with Len.
0: I actually heard him this morning on a call I'll talk about in just a few minutes. And I was like, Len, more great points. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Let's talk with Joshua Sterling Bragg, this time a focus on trauma, depressive swings, and the like, and a rangy conversation with special guest me. Patrick. (laughs) I'm the guest. (laughs) What do you know? The host (laughs) and guest. That'll close out that segment and this episode. Plus, Amy and I will share some thoughts of our own to close out the year. You got all that and more on today's episode. Welcome to Bloodstream.
1: Listeners, as always, thank you for joining Patrick and I here on Bloodstream. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts and follow Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for updates on new episode releases.
0: Listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream podcast is indeed made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda! Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community, Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Which
1: we do as well.
0: Aligned. And aligned. are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be, you, you can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, though you probably don't need it, <laughs> that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream podcast, I would just like to say, thanks, Takeda.
1: Thanks, Takeda. Oh, my Lord. I do feel like we're stumbling into the end of the year. Like, I am limping into
0: a little break. I am literally limping into the break, <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> been oh my limping gosh, for I didn't, months.
1: <laughs> I didn't, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I didn't mean that. Is so funny. Yeah, actually, speak. talk about your limp for oh sure, goodness. sir.
0: Well, let's start here. We were supposed to do something at Ash, which didn't happen. Oh and, gosh. you know, truth be told, as listeners know in the last episode, you were fighting off a sickness. You oh, commendably yeah. fought it off the entire time <laughs> we were down in New Orleans. We were. I did already... not
1: fight it. it It took me. It took me down.
0: I, well, listen, at a at certain point you with your sickness and me with my ankle had to just change our itineraries i mean i could i could only do so much walking around the warehouse district where i had to stop every 10 feet and like hold a pole i remember there was a time you opened the door for me at, <laughs> yes. at our location and i
1: thought i was like being nice i like opened the door and you immediately were like what's wrong with you
0: <laughs> well i just didn't i was just standing there and you stared at me like what's wrong and i was like my i need like a minute to wake up my, i know i can't move oh for at least a minute so we didn't wind up recording anything for Bloodstream via Ash. Sorry about that, listeners. Ash
1: was crazy, by the way. It was huge. It, like, oh, my
0: goodness. Like, miles
1: and miles of walking. It was the most people I think I have ever... Seen. Seen. <laughs> like,
0: hematologists <laughs> were
1: everywhere. Every it's Uber I went definitely the most
0: hematologists in, I've ever oh seen. Oh,
1: my gosh. It was crazy. And so, anyway... Yeah, anyway. Inj-
0: <sighs> I went to a few sessions. One of them was Luke Pembroke and Dr. Guy Young were presenting, amongst others, on gene therapy stuff. And I swear to you, Amy, as glacial as like NHF, BDC in Houston was, (laughs) I think I started on one end of the convention center and went to the exact opposite end and to the highest point of elevation floors up for a session that was it was like a mile walk. It was a 20 minute walk from the registration to that session. And I never stopped. I was walking the whole time. So that just goes to tell you. How
1: is your ankle?
0: (laughs) Limping. I'm limping. What do you think? But I will say, you know, there's been more to it than just this ankle thing. It was about this time last year that I hit the, okay, I can't take it anymore point. Right, right. And I did just make a few notes to kind of recap for listeners. Yeah. Because also, frankly, my sharing on this podcast led to me making decisions about treatment. Yes. You know, not because one person was like, hey, this thing. Yeah. But because that kind of feedback led to me doing my own research, led to yes. conversations with a, a very I've talked to four different doctors about this. So. I think it just goes to show the power of community and the power of media and sharing each other's experiences. So this time last year, okay, this can't go on like this anymore. In January, I started talking to my hematologist and the orthopedic surgeon, Dr. James Luck at my HTC here in Los Angeles. We talked about cortisone shots. We talked about ankle replacements. We talked about ankle fusions. And then eventually in subsequent appointments about a debridement, which is ultimately the surgical operation that I did get this year. January that was my first cortisone shot I had a second cortisone shot in June found really good relief from each of those the first for a longer period of time than Mm -hmm. the second predictably so and by talking about my ankle on this podcast I ultimately connected with Tommy Rusomano fellow blood brother in Massachusetts who's about the same age has a very similar story of a target left ankle joint and his experience with it he sent me what he wrote about his experience he sent me what he aggregated from all this research he did into platelet-rich plasma and for years now and I, I don't Think he'd mind my sharing. I think I've already shared this on the mic. So, But he's been getting one of these injections a year for years and found a great amount of relief. So I took that information, did my research, talked to my HTC hematologist, the surgeon there. I talked to my primary care physician and my primary care physician recommended I talk to a regenerative medicine specialist through Cedars, which I then did. And this guy, as it turns out, He's a doctor that works for the Clippers and the LA Kings and all these sports teams. So it was clear to me like, okay, this is so on front lines of regenerative medicine. Yes. Told him about my situation. Told him I'm getting this debridement where they're going to go in and clean out broken bits of bone fragment and extremely damaged to tissue, hopefully that reduces inflammation, and that same procedure is gonna let my surgeon take these bone spurs down. Would that then be a good time for an injection of platelet-rich plasma that we hope will release growth proteins and regenerate some tissue and some, some vitality to my ankle? And as it turns out, that is actually exactly what the regenerative medicine specialist said. Yes, post that procedure, you're kind of primed. So I had that done October 17th, the the, the surgery that is, and the PRP injection on my birthday, November 30th. Couldn't have anti-inflammatories for a week before, a couple weeks after, which also correlated with our trip to New Orleans for Uh. ash. And so it's been a bit of a bumpy road. But now for the last few days, I've been on Celebrex again. Thanks, Celebrex. And I'm recovered from way too much time on my feet last week. So... That brings us to what? Today, uh, we're recording this on the 18th, I think, for an episode coming out on the 23rd, 19th. 19th. And I would say right now, in summary, my pain is probably 10 to 15 percent better than it was this time last year. Right Mm. now. And right now is still only two months post-op. Yeah. Still coming off a really hectic little bit here where I put some extra strain on it, didn't have anti-inflammatory, blah, blah, blah. So I still expect it to get better. And the therapeutic effect of the PRP, I did not realize this at first, and it's kind of a critical like, oh, the therapeutic effect isn't expected to be felt for six to eight weeks post-administration oh. because it takes these growth proteins, these growth factors yeah. time to yeah. express from the platelets that were injected. And so I'm not actually expecting I'm going to feel any benefit from that November 30th shot until at the earliest, like end of January. So. Okay. I'm keeping that in mind. But just to kind of clock, a year ago, I'd say I was at, you know, I'm I'm 85%-ish where I was a year ago, which is more pain and discomfort than I want, more interference in my daily life from Mm -hmm. the first moment I wake up to the last moment I go to bed than I want. But if you've ever lived in Boston or Chicago, and it's been late January, and it's like 25 degrees out there, Mm -hmm. while 38 degrees isn't that much better... Mm -hmm. It makes a big difference over 25. Yeah. And that's kind of how I feel about this. While 85% of where I was last year ain't where I want to be, it is a meaningful 15% difference. The road, the journey ain't over. So I'm getting better. I'm just not where I want to be yet.
1: I'm encouraged. I'm not going to lie. Like after that Ash thing, we had a couple of text exchanges where I was like, oh, this is dark. And like this is, I, I felt like maybe it was a really significant step back and I was. I don't know, discouraged a little bit. And it, I'm, hmm. I'm I'm pleased to hear you say this, that it wasn't as, as a significant setback maybe as you thought. And like it's continue, it's just like continuing to step forward in your management of it and healing from that and those types of things. Because I think as your friend, knowing what you want to do with your life, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing, especially, you know, here we are on this like huge paradigm shift yeah. in hemophilia treatment, pain management, those types of things. Like there, there are now significant conversations that we can actually have have with physicians or just like you did smartly multiple physicians about you know what you want to do with your life and you very you have done the initial work of like, this is what I want to do. And I guess as your friend and your colleague, I just want to make sure that you like continue to do the things that you want to do. Not only parenting Vivian and being, you know, vital and around, but like some of your work requires you to be mobile in a way. And I think there will be conversations in the future about adaptability with these things. Like that's what I started to think about. And I was like, okay, we're just going to get really creative, you know, to make sure that he can do the things that he still wants to do and we're not we're not going to miss a beat and that it might take more planning or something like that but like that's what that's what we're going to do so anyway i'm I'm encouraged (laughs) well a little dark there for a while
0: yeah no and i appreciate you calling that out and you know we gotta we gotta keep it moving but i I will respond to that by saying it was kind of dark i know it was more pain than i wanted it was more frustrating than i wanted it to be it was preventing me from doing my job it was taking me away from things i wanted to do and it did cause some inner recalibrating and has had me thinking about, okay, well, what, what am I actually planning on for next year? And if I really am sober in my analysis about what my mind and body can take... Can I do everything that I am set up to do or do I need to think about it differently? Do I need to focus on other stuff? You know, I won't lie, getting back here and sitting in front of the computer for a few days in the office on the big screen and bouncing around my desk. You know, I hate to admit this, but I was like, maybe I just belong here more behind the computer. And that's where I got my start. I mean, I got the way I first got attention and noticed within hemophilia was by creating stuff in the digital social space, in part because... I do have physical challenges. Like yeah. there's, there were other reasons, but like that was part of it. Yeah, you know, and that that part only goes up. So it's so interesting, and this dovetails a little nicely into the conversation with Len. You made the point about the paradigm shift, and this is why shared decision making and personalized medicine is so crucial. Because with treatment, if there's no treatment option at all, and you've got something, a treatment option becomes available. Well, there's only so many questions that you have to ask. Right. But when there are different options available, then okay, well, what are your life goals? What is your total health picture? Because in addition to hemophilia, I will now live forever with joint disease in my ankle. Right. It's separate from the hemophilia. It interacts with it. Even if I am, you know, uh uh-oh, I'm going to use the the dirty word, but cured of hemophilia one day, that's not going to help the existing disease that is going on in my ankle. So we have to continue to think about this in a 360 way. And the medicine and the developments in science should only help us make better decisions, but they're not going to be blanket decisions. They're going to be one person at a time, one clinic visit, one shared decision-making process at a time. And I think that's going to be, Amy, a big part of our work next year is helping people process the information available to inform those decisions Mm -hmm. and sharing the experiences that that, that, that I have, that we hear about from the community that may help other people think perhaps a little differently about yeah. the decision before them.
1: Yeah, I agree, I agree.
0: Okay, so we're going to move into the interview with Len Valentino. Quick reminder before we do that, on the last episode, James was here to announce that next year on Bloodstream, we're going to have a segment dedicated to songs and stories about those songs from the bleeding disorders community. So if you or a loved one are a musician, a songwriter, and you've got music you'd like to share with Bloodstream, you'd like to have us put out to our audience, along with a bit of the story behind the song... Email us, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Once again, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Share the song and share your story for the potential to be featured on a segment next year. And with that, let us now go into the interview with Dr. Len Valentino.
1: Listeners, I am here with Dr. Lynn Valentino, CEO of the National Hemophilia Foundation and frequent contributor to the Bloodstream podcast. Welcome back, Lynn. We're so glad to have you
2: here. Hi, Amy. It's great to be back with you.
1: My goodness. So tell me, tell me a community-related highlight in 2022. What was a highlight for you this year?
2: Well, there were a lot of highlights. I, I'm actually just putting together a presentation for our board of directors, and I included highlights from all of our departments. But I think one of the real highlights was the Health Equity Summit that we held earlier this year. It was the first ever Health Equity Summit, brought together stakeholders from all uh, corners of the community to really begin the conversation on what health equity means, how we're going to create a health equity plan for the blood disorders community, and specifically for the bleeding disorders community. So for me, that was something that was really you know, sort of one of those watershed events and times for the community. Health equity is an area where, you know, there's so much work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And I think when we think about access to care, health equity is right up there as a critical component of access to care and ensuring that all people have access to quality medical care and the, the drugs and treatments that are necessary to enhance the life of people living with bleeding disorders.
1: Mm. Did you have a surprise coming out of that equity summit? Did something kind of strike you as something that you had never thought before or a, ver- a serious challenge that we have to overcome in the community?
2: Well, I think we probably knew this, but we failed to recognize, mm. you know, just how pervasive the inequities are in our community. Mm. And I think that's what, for me, that's what was really brought out is the depth of inequity and how different communities deal with these inequities and have created in some ways workarounds, but it's important that all community members have a seat at the table.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know, health equity begins by giving people a seat at the table and sharing their voices. So for me, it was amazing just to hear the voices of people who are oftentimes not part of the conversation and bringing them in and giving them a seat, having them participate in the conversation is so important. And I think, you know, we're we're at the beginning of this. This was a first step. We're gonna be planning another health equity summit for 2024 and 2023 will be doing the work, the hard work of what we learned from the first health equity summit, creating working groups, having those dialogues and creating the plans to move the community forward.
1: Lynn, give us the 30-second view of the National Research Blueprint, and uh, what can the community expect to hear from NHF in 2023 about this initiative?
2: So as you know, Amy, 2021 was about the research state of the science, articulating the priorities, understanding how the gaps in care, the gaps in treatment could be translated into scientific research questions. Now for 2022 and 2023, it's been all about taking those gaps and those questions and creating a blueprint. So we're working really hard with all of our partners in the community and importantly, the people who live with inheritable bleeding disorders to understand not just their lived experience, but how they want to see research progress and the blueprint help them you know live a better life and you know enhance their their well-being in the long term so i think what you're going to see in 2023 is planning around the blueprint and bringing in more stakeholders to ensure that we have alignment building the infrastructure is going to be incredibly important so you know when i look at what is the the goal for nhf in terms of research i see us focusing on being an enabler Mm -hmm. enabling the community to do the best possible research and i see that you know as an enabler Our goal is to set priorities. And these aren't NHF priorities, these are community priorities. So it's being a convener of stakeholders, and and importantly, the people who live with these disorders to have their voices represented, going back to sort of that health equity, making sure that people have a seat at the table. So it's setting the priorities, convening the groups that need to be at the table, including the researchers, the policymakers, the funders, and of course, the, those that are doing the research, and then providing resources to the community. And whether those resources are in the way of funding or infrastructure, or importantly, in the tools like community voices in research to better conduct research, better execute on research, I think is where NHF really can play a major role.
1: Another initiative that came out of NHF this year was Pathway to Cures. Tell us a little bit about that and why was it started?
2: So Pathway to Cures is our venture philanthropy program. And it was really started to realize the vision of a world without inheritable blood disorders. You need resources but importantly, you need to put those resources into the right places. Pathway to Cures is an effort to catalyze more investment in innovation, more investment in research by identifying early stage promising innovation, whether that is in academic laboratories that are ready to spin out a company or in early stage biotech companies that are in early seed or Series A or even Series B funding where we can play a role in shaping their future. So, you know, you think back to some of the most innovative biotech companies, it would be wonderful for NHF to have a hand in shaping the future of some of those biotech companies. So we're looking at innovation, not just in drugs, but also in devices, for example. Are there devices that could really enhance diagnosis of bleeding and blood disorders? Are there devices that can enhance the lifestyle for people living with these disorders? Are there ways to get point-of-care testing around the globe? And then also looking at digital technologies. Are there innovative ways to bring digital solutions to people to enhance their, their health and well-being? So it's not just about drugs or devices. Digital solutions, I think, are going to be really important. But this is NHF's way to capitalize this innovation and exciting research to bring it closer to the community. Anybody can participate in this program and we're looking for people who have the financial wherewithal to be able to participate, to be qualified donors, and then really having those people help us with our investment committee, our scientific committees, So, that we have the brightest and the best minds advising Pathway to Cures and NHF on where we should be putting these resources. And hopefully, what we will be able to develop is what's called an evergreen fund. Mm -hmm. So, any money that is made from Pathway to Cures, much like a venture philanthropy, where the money goes back to the investors, in a venture philanthropy program, any rewards in terms of financial gain goes back to the organization. To fund and fuel future innovative investments. So, what we're hoping to do is propel the blood disorders community, much like other communities like the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation or Juvenile Diabetes Foundation, and on and on and on, muscular dystrophy. All of those are organizations and programs that are fueled by venture philanthropy programs. Hmm. You know, this can really be quite successful as we've seen by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, and JDRF, T1D Fund, Michael J. Fox Foundation, all of these are incredibly successful funds that are putting millions, not just tens of millions, but in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars back into research and innovation to enhance the life and, and health of people in their community. So we're hoping that we can do something along the same lines to really bring innovation to the blood disorders community in a short period of time.
1: That's inspiring. That's really exciting. That's really exciting to hear, Lynn. From an advocacy perspective, public policy, advocacy access perspective, kind of heading into 2023, is there any particular issue that you believe hasn't received enough attention that the community should be kind of prepared to activate around?
2: Well, there's always the threat of having insufficient funding for our federal partners. Mm -hmm. And that includes, you know, the Food and Drug Administration is incredibly important. We just saw recently this past week, you know, the approval of our first gene therapy product in the United States. And listening to what the prospects are for innovative therapies that the FDA is evaluating, not just in in the bleeding and blood disorder space, but across the entire innovative spectrum. There's upwards of a thousand new drug applications that are being evaluated. This is an incredibly important time for the FDA to continue to get adequate funding. Funding for the National Institutes of Health, and in particular, The National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute is a key partner for us. Funding for Health and Human Services Administration, HRSA, is critical in the Maternal Child Health Bureau, which funds the hemophilia treatment centers and the network, but also for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You know, we rely on our federal partners for guidance but also for funding. And the community is is indebted to the federal grant dollars that are given to treatment centers. We need those funds, and we need to continue to advocate for those federal dollars, not just to be flat, but really to, to be increased. Another area that I think we need to have strong advocacy work is in terms of reimbursement and payment. We're gonna be at a critical time for access to care. We need to continue strong work that the organizations and, and programs like Comprehensive Care Sustainability Collaborative are doing to ensure that the hemophilia treatment centers remain in network, being able to provide not just services, but also product through 340B mechanisms that are so vital to the life and existence of our hemophilia treatment centers and the standard of care that we've come to, to appreciate and depend on. So I think it's ensuring that we have access to that network of care. It's also important that payers understand the value of hemophilia treatment centers. Mm-hmm. So continuing to advocate for that. And the Comprehensive Care Sustainability Collaborative is an area that really works hard at that. You know, our public policy team is planning for Washington Day's. And again, having more and more community support for Washington days is going to be important. We're going to have several key legislative issues that are going to be on the table that I think having those stories from community members, how it impacts each and every one of us, whether that's access to the hemophilia treatment center or not being able to go to the physician of your choice. I think is really critical. We're going to be working on multiple different fronts, on the advocacy front, on the payer front, and engaging our community, engaging through our chapters to bring the voice of people who are living with inheritable blood and bleeding disorders to our policymakers, which is going to be so important. So, you know, it's going to be an exciting 2023.
1: It is going to be an exciting 2023. You spoke about the gene therapy product that was approved this week. Terrific timing that we were able to talk to you this week after that news dropped. How do you think our first gene therapy being approved will change the reimbursement landscape in hemophilia? And what role does NHF play in those conversations from a high level?
2: Well, the last part of your question, the role that NHF plays, I think that a patient advocacy organization plays a critical role in multiple different aspects. First, we have to bring the voice of the patient, bring the voice of the people who live with, in this case, hemophilia B, to the community. Now, the drug developers, they have this information, we're sharing this on a regular basis. But I think what's really important now is to interact with payers, Mm -hmm. to ensure that payers understand what value this gene therapy can potentially make to an individual, to his family or her family, to bring a better lifestyle for that individual. It's not going to be an inexpensive proposition, but, you know, we think that access to all FDA approved products is important, but we need to do that in a responsible way. So these are decisions that are made between an individual, a patient and his or her family, and a healthcare provider. And we need to make sure that that decision-making process is not impeded or hampered by payers or other barriers that are put up, no matter what those barriers might be. So we want to ensure that shared decision-making is fostered and facilitated, that patients and family members have the tools that they need the necessary information. And our providers are well equipped to engage in that shared decision-making conversation. And then really it's that decision that happens between the patient, his his or her family, and the healthcare provider. And if the decision is right, then we need to ensure that there's access to that treatment and that payers are not putting up unnecessary barriers or making people go through Unnecessary hoops, so to speak, to gain access to that treatment. We're advocating for access to care and access to treatment, but we want to make sure we're doing it in a responsible way so that people have appropriate access to these new innovations as they come along. The second part of your question, I think, is you know, what else can we do? And it's important that we provide the conduit to education the conduit to the advocacy services and be a clearinghouse for information. We don't have a stake in the game. We need to be somebody, uh, an organization that is providing unbiased information to healthcare professionals, as well as people who live with hemophilia B in this case, so that people can make clear and informed decisions on a regular basis.
1: You know, one of the things that I have loved about NHF's work over the past few years is how you have continued to try to expand to be representative of von Willebrand's disease patients and rare blood disorders. And I guess I just wondered, what are some of the ways that NHF is going to continue this work in 2023, specifically for VWD and rare blood disorders?
2: Yeah. So, Amy, as you know, we've talked before about needing to put special emphasis on these two particular areas. So these are two of our five priority action areas or priority action teams. Von Willebrand disease and rare and ultra rare bleeding disorders, as well as digital health and the future therapies and mental health. But in particular, Von Willebrand disease, you know, again, we've got these wonderful diagnostic and treatment guidelines. We've still got a lot of work to do Mm -hmm. to empower the people who live with Von Willebrand disease and get the word out to people who potentially have von Willebrand disease, to activate them, to be self-advocates for diagnosis. I hear stories regularly about people who continue to have delays, years of delays in diagnosis for von Willebrand disease. We have to stop that. We have to really create a, a more inclusive environment so people who have the signs and symptoms that are consistent with von Willebrand disease, are able to advocate with their primary care provider, with their obstetrician gynecologist, with an emergency room physician, with an ear, nose, and throat doctor for recurrent nose bleeding, that the appropriate tests are performed and referrals are made to a hematologist, in particular, a hematologist in a hemophilia treatment center who has the knowledge and the expertise to undertake the appropriate diagnostic workup. And then, once a diagnosis is made, to share the education and the treatment protocols that are necessary for these people to live their best life. We have to not have people living 15 or 20 years with unnecessary and not just bothersome, but life-altering bleeding symptoms so that they can really have a better life. So NHF continues to work on medical education programs, community education programs for people who currently are diagnosed with von Willebrand disease, but I see those who potentially have von Willebrand disease as being an important population. How do we access the general community To give them the knowledge and to empower them with the the information that they need to be self-advocates, whether that's using a bleeding assessment tool that's self-administered, and then taking that information to their healthcare provider and saying, hey, look at this. I got this off the National Hemophilia Foundation website. You know, I need to do something with this. What can you help me with? Mm -hmm. And if they don't get answers, then they need to go somewhere else.
1: Lynn, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. It's always a pleasure. Last question for you. There's a rumor floating around that there might be a change or a modification to NHF's name here in the future. And I was wondering if you could either confirm or deny.
2: (laughs) Of course. The National Hemophilia Foundation has enjoyed now 75 years as an organization, as a patient advocacy organization, beginning in 1948 in To commemorate our 75th anniversary, we are undergoing a rebranding. And part of that rebranding is the potential for a name change. And the motivation for that name change is to be more inclusive, be more inclusive. You just brought up von Willebrand disease and rare and ultra rare bleeding disorders. Where do those people fit in the National Hemophilia Foundation? We wanna be more inclusive to people living with von Willebrand disease living with factor 13 deficiency, or any of the rare and ultra rare bleeding disorders, living with congenital platelet disorders, or for that matter, people living with other blood disorders, including hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, sickle cell disease, thalassemia, venous thrombosis, all of these blood disorders where we might not be the experts, but we can provide 75 years of knowledge, expertise, and support to those communities to help them live their best life as well. So we're we're not gonna be everything for everybody, but we can be something for a lot of people. And I think that's where NHF, or whatever our moniker is in the future, we wanna be as inclusive as possible and representative of the entire blood disorders community as possible. That's why Pathway to Cures is so important. It's not just focused on bleeding disorders, it's focused across the entire blood disorders landscape. Mm -hmm. So we're excited. I think 2023 is gonna be an amazing year. I'm looking forward to what the the rebranding looks like and what our potential uh, name change is. And I hope I'll be invited back in 2023 to share more exciting information about that.
1: Well, you can count on that. Dr. Valentino Lynn, thank you so much again, as always. And uh, we're, we're going to be on the lookout for the new branding. That's going to be
2: exciting. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. It's you always bet. a pleasure to be with you. We appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Lynn.
1: I love talking to Dr. Valentino. He is wonderful. He is wonderful. Wanted to get your thoughts about a few things that he mentioned. One of the things that I love about his interview, he was so succinct about some of the top level things that NHF is doing that feels a little invisible sometimes to the community. It's Mm. like some of these wheels that are churning that don't necessarily trickle down to the work that's happening in local communities. I really feel like that was Val's legacy is that his work, he really put so many resources and people back into building up the local chapter communities, which now are really thriving. Mm. And here in this new era of NHF, some of these bigger things are happening. And I just love that we can bring attention to some of the work that's happening nationally because they are kind of invisible. Stuff with the National Blueprint, Pathways to Cures, I thought was incredible. Some of the de i work that they've done. And so I guess I just wanted to turn over to you to, to see a little bit specifically about Pathway to Cures. It, it is such a... Mm you know, it's a venture philanthropy fund um, mm-hmm. created to specifically accelerate the development of cures across inheritable blood disorders. This is happening in most chronic disease spaces. Um, now it's happening here within blood disorders. When you
0: say it's happening, in, what what exactly do you mean by that? What is happening?
1: This is how... This, this is being
0: ha- the fund model?
1: The fund model. This okay. is what's happening uh, in MS. This is what's happening. This is this is a lot of what, you know, some of the charitable work that's being done in other chronic diseases. So mm. it's, it's something that I think folks that have Worked in other disease states, other nonprofit arenas in chronic and rare disease have brought to NHF. And I, I think it's wonderful. I'm just wondering, you know, if you had any thoughts or any takeaways about all of that stuff.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember conversations with the late John Indents when he was working at the National Hemophilia Foundation about missed opportunities in his yes. framing that NHF had before them to get involved with the development of medications and clinical trials and to be a partner in that i don't remember how many specifics we even talked about but broadly he made the point that there are opportunities to get involved in ventures in speculative opportunities that if they pay off for the community not only does the community benefit but the foundation itself could financially benefit in a long-term way And i remember when he brought that before me i thought you know i've I know about like endowments and the idea that if there's a certain amount of money behind a nonprofit, that that money in and of itself may be able to churn enough annual revenue so that there's sort of a, a stable core that you can rely on fiscally as an organization. So I remember hearing about that. But then otherwise... Figuring, okay, well, how do you make money if you're a, a foundation or, or a big nonprofit? You're relying on donations, mm-hmm. and we hear all the time about we need to diversify the donor base, we need to diversify the sponsor base. And my retort, yes, but then my immediate next question is like, who's going to make Coca-Cola care about hemophilia? Right. You know, that's a very easy thing to say, but if we're practical about it, like name a rare disease that you've seen tons of different non-medical sponsorship for their golf events and their camps and all of their whatever. I'm not aware of them, I'm sure there's some, but we've been, unfortunately, dependent upon the entities that care most about us. So what I like about the Venture Fund is it opens up another opportunity for people or groups of people or entities that would like to support the foundation, would like to support inheritable bleeding disorders, but aren't interested in making just a broad donation to the National Hemophilia Foundation, aren't necessarily interested in, okay, there's scholarship programs and those are important, but that's not what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about where's the innovation that's really gonna move the ball forward in an aggressive way? Where's some of the more speculative, interesting stuff happening in the back of laboratories? And and this venture fund feels like it gives a certain group an opportunity to give to NHF who may not otherwise give or not give as much, it gives NHF the opportunity to sit in the capred seat of some innovation and development for mm-hmm. the betterment of the broader bleeding disorders community. Mm-hmm. And it places a little less reliance on biopharmaceutical clinical trials and biopharmaceutical mm-hmm. innovation to drive scientific development because now NHF is establishing a pathway that doesn't necessarily involve pharma at least from jump there's a now there's mechanistically another way mm-hmm. that innovation can get started in early stages so i just think it expands the options I of support too. and i i see nothing but positive from you know what this could be
1: i am not an expert on philanthropy oh i am by the way Uh! (laughs) (laughs) but i i just think this is smart and if you guys everyone remembers it because it's like the thing that everyone calls back to but that ice bucket challenge the als Mm. ice bucket challenge you know that was um a fluke that started as a total fluke but how many
0: conversations thereafter about how do we get an ice bucket challenge for hemophilia It's like okay How do you get Michael Jordan on your basketball team?
1: But one of the things that I think was interesting is, A, the the ALS Foundation was so smart with that because if you donated it at all, you got... You know quarterly updates about what they were doing with that money, mm-hmm. and this is what they mm-hmm. did: they funded research. You know they they started a venture capital fund, and they all of a sudden like the money started shooting, and you know specifically to certain laboratories, to certain researchers. It just feels nice, and I think from a you know a standpoint of our community, I think this just again just secures us in, in a way that like innovation really truly is starting to bubble, and maybe there will be some. Um, initiative for researchers to get into this specific pocket of hematology. So
0: and there's a natural relationship, psyched. you know, speaking of researchers, between the Pathway to Cures work and the National Research Blueprint. They're two separate initiatives, but the concentric there is an overlap in those two concentric circles yeah. around research, activation around research from researchers, from patients. So I expect that in addition to discussion about you know, the evolving landscape of therapeutic options and personalized medicine and all of that, I do imagine that another thing that we will be talking about pretty regularly in 2023 has to do with research, the blueprint, this pathway to cures. So I'm glad that Len was able to give us some really succinct top line information about these programs and where his head's at as the leader of the National Foundation. And again, I this is far from an exhaustive discussion about it. I think this is like a, an opening to a 2023 full of discussion along these lines. Agree. So with that, let's close out with our last Let's Talk of the year, a segment that, as always, is led by Joshua Sterling Bragg. Let's Talk is a partnership between Bloodstream Media and Sanofi, and it aims to create an environment where we can have open, honest conversations about mental health in the bleeding disorders community. Let's Talk strives to shed light on the topics that are often invisible and not spoken of in the community and shares tips on how to care for your or a loved one's mental health. If you or someone you know has experienced feelings that are impacting your mental health, talk to your healthcare provider and find educational resources at Santa Fe is proud to sponsor this podcast segment because they believe that each one of us has a story. Visit shareyourwhy.com to meet the Fe Core team and hear from them and members of the community about their story and passion for the hemophilia community. And now, on to this week's, the final of 2022s, Let's Talk.
3: It's the end of the year, and that always feels like a perfect time to check in on how the last year went and to set some intentions for the next one. And to talk about that today, I'm joined by Patrick. You know Patrick, host of the Bloodstream podcast. You are probably just listening to him now. How fun. Let's talk.
0: The end of the year seems to be a difficult time for me with regard to mental health. And I I don't think I'm alone in that. But just to keep it personal, so many years, I don't know if I have like some sort of seasonal depressive or, you know, otherwise like seasonally related mood swings. But it does seem like this time of year between the holidays and maybe some like traumatic events from the past that took place this time of year. My birthday is this time of year, which I know Josh, you can relate to. And maybe that plays into it in ways I'm not totally conscious of. So it's a tricky time of year. But I think right now, this year, I have more awareness of that than I've ever had and have been more proactive about paying attention to the little signs and not letting things spin too much, reminding myself where we are in the calendar and what my habits tend to be. So I'm doing well, but I'm acknowledging that we are in this part of the journey of the year where like the boat is shaking more than I would like it to.
3: Yeah, we're on a similar path and and especially with the more aware than usual. And I think it's because I I have done therapy now once and I closed out those sessions and now I'm immediately when the time change happened, I started feeling, and I think this is partially because of COVID because normally I would start feeling the seasonal depression around like February or March towards Mm -hmm. the end of like long periods of darkness. But I felt it right away. The second, the time change happened and I identified it right away and was like, I got to get myself into therapy because I know that there are going to be some Mm -hmm. things stirring up and there have been. Yeah, this time of year is weird because there's so much like we get so much time back, I guess, because you have the Thanksgiving break and you have the two weeks off for Christmas. And I think as a creative, at least for me, having stillness is what kind of causes the brain to go into overdrive.
0: Yeah, same here. And I tend to fill my time with things and You know, throw myself at work, throw myself at a new venture, throw myself into whatever I'm doing, in part because I think that is my personality. But I also think that part of my personality is something I default to so as to not have to sit still and have to process the things I don't really want to spend time with. I would rather just keep busy. I've actually been thinking about that pretty acutely recently with regard to this ankle pain, because I've been paying more attention to it. And I had to go off some anti-inflammatories recently for a medical thing. So it's given me a really clear sense of like where I'm at right now. And I'm so used to, my mom told me, reminded me recently of this story about in high school, tell this quick story. I was applying to go to different private high schools and had to take a special entrance exam. Totally forgot this until like a week and a half ago. And the night before the exam in eighth grade, this was like during my middle school peak of problems with hemophilia and I had a really bad bleed and I was on crutches and I, I wasn't able to sleep well nights in a row. And so the, the day before and morning of the test, my mom was encouraging me, you know, Patrick, you don't have to do this. Like you can stay at your school, you can take the test next year and maybe try sophomore year to transfer in. And she was like, you were resolute. No, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And on no sleep, she's like, I, I just remember dropping you off at the school and you went up the stairs with your crutches, one stair at a time, and clearly in a lot of pain. And you got into every school you applied to. And I've forgotten that story. And I've forgotten stories like that, that she's told me over the years. I think in part because I I do put the blinders on and just say like, okay, I'm shoving that pain down. I got a goal and there's only so much time. I will accomplish this. I am not going to let this stop me. You know, I have really taken the like, I'm not going to let my pain and my medical challenges be the thing that stops me. Uh, There are times where that is a pretty frankly, unstoppable sense of will. And I was able to, you know, in that story, muster it. But nowadays, I'm not so interested in mustering. I'm trying to just be a little bit more accepting of where I am and perhaps acknowledge when like, oh, I I can't do that thing. I can't take that test today. Or I can't come into the office to record in studio. I have to stay home. My attitude about like, no matter what, I can do it has not shifted in a wholesale way, but is definitely, I think, evolved in a more mature way. I'll say that.
3: So let me ask you this because I've been, I've been feeling, um, you know, we both recently turned another year older and I've been noticing in myself this past, maybe like six months leading up to it, that I'm discovering a sense of resolve in myself, not like I, at first I thought it was like giving up. I thought it was like, Oh, you know, I had this thought I I was sitting next to Courtney in bed one Saturday morning and I just turned. And before I even thought the thought it came out of my mouth, I totally get why people give up on their dreams. And uh, that of course was extremely Mm. alarming to her, but I've, I've digested that now because, and what I think I really meant by that was like, I think I understand why people settle down. Like why people, yeah. you know, like I used to get every single American cinematographer magazine and pour over every single page. And now it sits in a pile of unread cinematographer magazines because I don't necessarily want to be shooting a Marvel movie on a green screen with a, you know, million dollar, $500 million budget or whatever they make those movies for. <laughs> sure, nowadays. Yeah. I want to make numbers. the more intimate stuff and that and I want to make stuff that is me. And I'm, I'm wrestling right now with the idea of like, do I want to do anything even on that scale? Or am I happy where I am? And there's like a little bit of resolve there of like, well, do I want to like sit and do a puzzle tonight? Or do I want to agonize over three pages of a script that I'm trying to write that might never get made
0: again, related to this idea too, of like pain and resiliency? How far do I push myself to strive for what I think it is? I want the things I think as an artist and creative that I want to say and push out into the world because, you know, with the, with the effort and with the push, that, right, that's where the suffering comes in, you know, mm-hmm. want equals suffering. And can I, I love my daughter. I love my wife. I have, I have some really great things. Can this be enough? Like, do I need to continue to push for something more?
3: I don't think this is just an artist's problem. I think if like you're a contractor and you want to work on bigger and bigger projects because you want to push yourself or if you're, I don't know, other, (laughs) have another job, like, uh, you know, you work in a restaurant and, but you want to work with like more articulate food and with a different chef, you know, um, yeah, I don't think because I, I get self-conscious sometimes talking about this stuff because we're artist to artist. We're both working at the same company. We're both yeah. like kind of striving towards, you know, working in entertainment and growing that. But I don't think it's exclusive right, to just who we are.
0: It's not. You're right. It's a human thing because there people of all walks, there are those who have an itch to push further and strive for more and take risks and try to evolve in some daring ways. And there are those who can be quite happy with, this is my spot. This is what I do. And, you know, I've worked this job for 30, 40 years. I mean, my mom is like this. My mom has worked one job. I mean, she's had different jobs as a nurse, but at the one hospital Mm -hmm. since she's 21 years old and she turns 65 in a couple of months, you know, I, I obviously have chosen a very different path. And it's just different walks of life. I also know colleagues of hers that have been very ambitious. And so she's like, you know, had to say goodbye to friends who have moved on because they're doing other things and good for them. But it's yeah, I appreciate you calling that out. It isn't just art. We may be artists, but this is not a dilemma that is exclusive to artists.
3: So I have one more question for you. And then I have a homework assignment. Um, <laughs> Wait, I didn't know I was getting a homework assignment. So what are your mental health goals for this next
0: year? I suppose this would be a good moment for me to establish some mental health goals for this next year. <laughs> um, they so, don't have to
3: be huge, monumental, life-changing things. They can just be keeping the path.
0: I mean, for sure, keeping the path. Yeah, I like this path we're on, and and I do think continually reminding myself that growth is a win, growth is a progress. I don't need to no longer feel anxious or no longer have to have depressive thoughts. To be, like, that's not what it's about, as we've discussed. Um, so I do want to keep the path, but I suppose to take it one step further and as a means of holding myself accountable, as I look at 2023 and my goals professionally and personally, of which they are multi-pronged. So there's a, a number of different goals. and Some of them are at direct conflict with each other, right? Like the more time I spend at work, the less time I have to spend with my family. And yet I want to put a lot of time into both. So I think for me, I need to be able to set up a schedule and a plan of attack for next year and then create the boundaries and systems that enable me to trust what I've set up, execute based on the plan that was set up and not worry so much about, am I doing the right thing? Should I be doing more here?
3: For me, it's more intentional outside of work focus. So time with friends, um, riding my bike, Um, that sort of thing. And then I have food related goals because Mm. I, I love to eat so much that Mm -hmm. I will eat to the point of getting sick. And I've been doing Mm -hmm. it for years, especially because of the pandemic. It just kind of was like, well, let's get into food. Let's like really (laughs) dive in. And um, that has affected my mental health because if I eat to the point of uncomfortability, then I become lazy. When I become lazy, I start to judge myself and then I feel sick and I don't want to work out. And so I don't work out. And so, you know, and it becomes that, that cycle. So my, my, one of my main goals next year for my mental health is to treat my body better Mm. because I can still have all the things I want to have. I just don't have to have them in complete and utter excess. Right. All right. Homework assignment. Have you seen the new Jonah Hill documentary about his therapist
0: no but i love him and the idea of this project
3: so the key to this and this is homework for listeners as well is to get past the like 15 minute mark because there is a shift and you might be making hmm. judgments about it in the first 15 minutes you might you know you're you're pardon the language but bull- <laughs> and we can <laughs> bleep that. Whoa, your bullet meter spicy. might be kind of high, um, okay. but then something happens and and you're just like in it. Um Ooh. Okay. Yeah, so I hope that's enticing enough to get people to click on Stutz S-T-U-T-Z I believe is how it's spelled by Jonah Hill. It's the new documentary and uh it's it's phenomenal. It's one of those ones you're going to want to watch a couple of times.
0: Alright, well let's make sure that we uh, have Keith throw a link in the program notes and, and Josh, if it doesn't interrupt your schedule for this segment next year, perhaps in January or February, I'd be happy to come back on and we could do a little discussion about our takeaways from the film.
3: Yeah, that'd be amazing. Thank you to Patrick and Amy for giving me a place to talk about these things. Talking can be so healing. If you're on your own mental health journey and would like access to some great resources, you can check out Let's Talk mh.com and click resources. Next episode, Jessica dives into New Year's resolutions on the well. And as for us, Let's talk next month.
0: Thank you, Josh. Uh, Me. Thank you, me, the special guest for the Let's Talk segment. (laughs) Thank you, Len. And thank you, frankly, to everyone who has contributed to the Bloodstream podcast this year. Producer, Keith Korneluk, our graphic designer, Christina yes. Newhard, who's moving on to brighter pastures yes. in 2023. We got new great team members. But everybody at Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media who have helped make this show and, frankly, all our shows yes. possible, thank you. And nothing at the Bloodstream podcast would be possible without our presenting sponsor, TakedaBleedingDisorders.com. Thanks, to Takeda. That closes us out for 2022, Amy Board. So when is Bloodstream coming back in 2023? When are we going to do this again? Because I know it's good to go on break and I know it's important to, be- yes. but like, I'm going to struggle if we can't sit in this room and talk into these mics again I before know. too long. Are we doing this again soon? We're
1: doing it again. January 13th. Mark your calendars, everybody. Great. Okay. We're going to be back and bold. <laughs>
0: oh, oh, finally. Okay, good. Been waiting for that day to come around. Uh, January thirteenth. That's the bold day. Okay. That's the
1: bold day, everybody.
0: It's gonna I'll underline it it's or put it great. in bold. And that, dear listeners, is all for this episode and calendar year 2022. As always, remember to subscribe, listen to, share episodes of the Bloodstream podcast from wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm sure there's some friends, some family, some, uh, I listen, you know, somebody recently told me about a taxi driver that they got to subscribe to podcasts. And I realized I recently talked about my Uber drivers who think it's a social experience. And I'm like, man, can you just drive me where I'm going? (laughs) But From now on, when people want to talk to me, I know my new tactic, I'm getting them to subscribe to the Bloodstream podcast. You want to talk to me? Then I got a topic for you. The Bloodstream podcast. Psyched about it. And that is all. So do what I do. Make people listen to the Bloodstream podcast. And again, if you or a loved one is a musician, a songwriter, and you've got a story to share about music that you've created, please let us know. Email mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com.
1: Y'all, you can also use mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com to inquire about storytelling and casting opportunities for our podcast or Believe Limited's films. And we're always casting something. It,
0: It remains true.
1: Legitimately always casting something. You can also connect with Bloodstream Media me, Amy Board, or my pal, Patrick James Lynch, on all the socials.
0: <laughs> I was gonna make a joke about being a pal. By the way, Vivian now says, hi, pal. Cause I have gotten in the habit of when I like get her up in the morning or after a nap to go, hi, pal. So you now sometimes when I would just walk into a room, she goes, hi, pal.
1: Oh my god. It's pretty
0: heart melting. Wow. That that
1: is a dagger to my soul. <laughs> and on that, ladies and gentlemen,
0: I am your host Patrick James Lynch. And I'm
1: your other host Amy Board. And until
0: next time, take self care of yourself. Happy holidays and happy, holidays. happy 2023. Bye everybody. Bye
1: bye.